what China has just done is to unleash uh, epidemiological and economic havoc on the planet Earth. Now, as it is, let's be clear, no country trusts China. I think this is the first crisis in my lifetime that I see America absent from most geographies that are responding to a crisis. The more China acts like China, Mm-hmm. The less anyone else on earth wants to be like China. I think India tech is likely to emerge post this crisis. I think the world, India, the US, Japan, Australia, Korea, Indonesia and others need to begin to realize that saying China is a problem is not good enough. A solution has to be put on the table. Hi everyone, you're with Business Insider. This is Sriram Ayer. The coronavirus crisis is evolving with every breath we take. While the societies and economies around the world are on lockdown, geopolitics and global power play have a life and a pace of their own. The tension between US and China has rattled markets most recently. The US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo recently cited an enormous uh, evidence of a cover-up by China. And now people fear that Beijing might retaliate. And all of this leads to a whole lot of speculation. But here at Business Insider, we believe, why guess when you can know? And that is why we decided to bring you two people who are just as obsessed with China as you are or anyone else is, but in very different ways. If you're wondering who will come out out on the top at the end of this coronavirus crisis, will it be China, will it be US, or will it be somebody else? You might find the answer today in the next half an hour. This is the fourth episode of the big reset. All you need to know to win in the post-COVID-19 world. This is a special partnership between Business Insider and the Observer Research Foundation a leading think think tank in India that policymakers just can't ignore. So join me in welcoming Parag Khanna, the most good-looking man in geopolitics and the managing partner at FutureMap, and Samir Saran representing ORF on the panel today. Welcome, gentlemen, to Business Insider. Parag thinks that future is Asian. Samir thinks the future is China. And both of them don't like China as much, if I can say that. They can correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, I, I like that. So let's see how much the two of them can agree on and who is more convincing to the larger audience, laymen like us. So Parag, let me start with you. Welcome to the special broadcast. Um, I've been following you for a few years now, uh, from your TED Talk way back to your latest book. And a lot of your premise hasn't changed. Uh, the fact that you know the world is obsessed with China, but Asia is much bigger than that and that people should look at it as a a system, a trading, uh, you know, sort of a continent that trades within itself and has a lot more potential by itself. Um, and it is the future, uh, you know, in the years to come, in the decades to come. Has the coronavirus crisis changed, you know, the whole or parts of this premise in the last few months? Great question, Shiran. It's great to be with you and with Samir. I'm really looking forward to this uh, conversation. I think you've started off with exactly the right question. So Asia is still a system. In fact, it will be even more of an integrated or interdependent system in light of the virus. Why? Because the rest of the world is not going to prove to be the economic engine that it has needed to be. Instead, Asia yet again, even more so, as was the case after the 2008 financial crisis, people are looking to China, to Japan, to uh, Southeast Asia, to India, to be pulling the world economy forward. So one thing we have to be clear about at the outset is that we have a North American system, a European system, and an Asian system. Asia now has to further integrate in order to offset the decline in exports to the developed, mature, wealthy countries of the West because those economies are obviously not in any shape right now. So that's number one. Number two, when it comes to China, 
this virus has absolutely reinforced magnificently the suspicion that all Asians have of China. What country is more suspicious of China than India, after all, besides Japan, right? So this intense suspicion is being magnified. You may have seen this, that the, you know, the kicker think tank, CICIR in China, has just released a report to the Ministry of State Security saying that the anti-Chinese suspicion has not been this high since after the Tiananmen Square massacre. Now, the Tiananmen Square massacre was entirely internal. What China has just done is to unleash uh, epidemiological and economic havoc on the planet Earth. So the order of magnitude is substantial. Now, as it is, let's be clear, no country trusts China. We work with China. We all do business with China. We all trade with China. We all take investment from China and so on and so on. But that does not mean you trust China. The trust, the mistrust of China will literally never return, ever. No matter how much we have to work with China, no matter which countries fall into debt traps with China, all of that will only reinforce the suspicion of China. And that will exist for the rest of our lives. No, but uh, I, I want to do a follow-up on this. Uh, but before that, let me open the floor to Samir as well to comment. Uh, and then I can take the question to each one of you separately. Samir, uh, how do you want to respond to this? I think, uh, you know, this is a point at which both of you agree. Uh, China is not someone that any, everybody can trust easily. Uh, but does that change the fact that, uh, you know, it is a neighborhood bully, uh, you know, one of the, you know, it is five times, ten times the size of each of its neighbors. It has more money, more pull, more power, more people, bigger market, uh, and a more uh, incentive for foreign investors uh, to come in and you know be part of the Chinese system. And therefore, what do you what do you have to say? How do you respond to Parag? Shriram, I think Parag made two very important points, uh, and I'm going to put words in his mouth so that my words have a greater gravitas. Yes, since you have termed him as uh, uh, the best looking geopolitical opponent. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, you know, he makes a larger point about uh, clearly the end of a era, if uh, we could call it Pax Americana, then Pax Americana. If you could call it an era of the Atlantic system, which was America and Europe, we could term it in that particular manner. But certainly uh, what began in 2007-8 with the financial crisis ends with this pandemic, with, with the complete inability of modern developed economies to cope with the pandemic with their inability to provide leadership to the rest of the world, be providing succor and aid and assistance to large swaths of geography. Samir, I'm sorry to interrupt. Just to simplify this for our audience, uh, across you know, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, everywhere, not everyone is and on TikTok. the same page. And TikTok, of course. <laughs> uh, and the question is that, are you saying that uh, when you say that the countries have failed, the system has failed, hmm. uh, do you mean the, that this has rattled the faith in globalization even more? Then it was no, I, I, I think, I think uh, Shriram, you've jumped to the third point that I was okay. about to make. Okay, okay. The first point is that the countries are absent from global action. I okay. think this is the first crisis in my lifetime that I see America absent from most geographies that are responding to a crisis. Earlier, if you had a crisis, you had Uncle Sam. Okay. That is over. You also had capabilities in Europe to intervene through human aid, through uh, grants, through funds, through technology, through assistance. That is not present either. So you see the Atlantic system absent from largest parts of the world because they are fighting their own challenges. Okay. So first, the Pax America or the Atlantic system era is over. Second, what replaces it? And I think that's a big question. What is going to be a coalition or a collective or a grouping or a region that is going to 
begin to influence global politics. Now, clearly, the Asian century or uh, Asia as a uh, continent is very, very important. But is it a coherent continent? Do we have one Asia or do we have multiple Asias? And if we have these multiple Asias, do we have structures and regional arrangements that Parag has emphasized on? That, that have you built systems that can work together or are you building divisions that are going to, in some sense, create more walls in the continent than connections in, uh, across this geography? So I think that's the second question. That is Asia as a coherent entity ready to replace the Atlantic system? I doubt we still have some way to go. Mm. Now, what thereafter is left available for any of us to coalesce around? And one of the polls that has emerged, however bad, vile, malicious that some may call it, is uh, what I in my book called Pax Sinica, China's World, which is a very different, very for some compelling and for some malicious offering on the table, state-run, state-controlled capitalism, a degree of authoritarianism, weaponization of trade dependence, uh, creating supply chains that perversely benefit Beijing, and creating dependencies and new tribute systems that will allow China to shape the global future, the future of the global order. And this is, uh, in some sense, the Asia that is most visible to the largest parts of the world. So when we say the Asian century today, we're really talking about China, because you're not going to see India uh, with the same kind of economic and political clout. Uh, you see the Japanese do it in a Japanese style. They do a lot, by the way. The Japanese are, are, are doing a lot as well. They are, they are responding to the rise of China, but they do it in a typical reticent, um, slower Japanese manner, and you see uh, other Asian countries battling their own inner politics, economics, and social conditions. So, uh, to me, when you say the future is Asian, and as Parag uh, 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 very compellingly writes in his work, uh, I agree. But currently, the definition of Asia has unfortunately been captured by the essence of China. And I think the, the key question before us is that can Asia mean more than China? Can we put forward a system, an arrangement, a coalition, um, uh, Asian union in the decade ahead? Can we have seven or eight important actors work together to create rules of trade, rules of uh, war and peace, rules of conduct, rules of digital, rules of, of uh, rights and human um, security? And of course, uh, how can we start influencing uh, larger swaths beyond Asia? Interesting. Uh, and I'm going to, uh, you know, um, uh, let Parag respond to this. And I, but I want to take this one point at a time for the ease of understanding for our viewers. Uh, to summarize what Samir said, that, uh, you know, uh, America is missing in action. Uh, when he says that, he means that uh, it should have been the leader in curtailing this pandemic, but it has been caught chasing its own tail. Uh, number two is that uh, China, every time America is absent uh, or the Western powers, the democracies are absent, an authoritarian regime, a state-controlled uh, system like China gains prominence. And when it gains prominence, it becomes more powerful and it uh, you know, gains the um, power to assert itself and, and call it, call it, call the shots uh, in the region that it is present in, which is Asia. So, uh, so the question to you, Parag, is then let's take it one at a time. Uh, does the American absence, is this the new normal that, uh, is this part of the new normal uh, that is coming into force, uh, you know, uh, across different spectrums, right? I, I mean, whether it is at your workplace, whether it is in the markets, whether it is in economies, is the absence of America in the global uh, order and the leadership that it used to provide, is it going to be the new normal, normal in the near future? 
There, there's no question that that's already been the case. Remember that Samir mentioned the financial crisis and he talked about the delegitimation of the United States as a global leader since the financial crisis. Technically, you could actually go back to the post 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks. That's 20 years ago, not just 12 years ago, almost 20 years ago. And the US response, overreaction, imperial overstretch, failed wars in Iraq and Afghanistan before the financial crisis. Then came the financial crisis. Then came the Occupy Wall Street movement and the reaction to, you know, sort of um, a very, you know, crony style uh, inequality capitalism. Then you had Brexit and Trump. And now you have the mishandling of the coronavirus. So you have 20 years, even the youngest person in listening can remember some of these episodes of the world moving on, expecting George W. Bush nor Barack Obama, nor Donald Trump to provide the answer. So, you know, even by asking the question, it's like, forget that era, it's gone. We would not be able to talk about what Asia is doing for itself, hmm. let alone debate who's the leader of Asia, but without even referencing the United States, all of that were completely in the past. So let's move on and let's take Samir's, I mean, I think Samir, you, you phrased it far more eloquently than anyone I've literally heard in the last 10 years about these questions. If we talk about Asia, I mean, there's what Asia is versus what Asia should be, right? Mm -hmm. And you and I probably agree about the following. So what Asia is right now is as a geographical space is far larger than China. It is almost 5 billion people. Most of those people are not Chinese. And yet when the world looks at Asia, all they see is China. When the world looks at Asia, all they see is authoritarian regime. Uh, systems, instead of saying that actually most Asians live in democracies, but it's like people ignore this because but, uh, they ignore India. And it should be. Parag, I want to, interrupt, I want to jump in there for a minute uh, and just to sort of take this conversation, uh, you know, add a layer to this, which is basically, uh, you know, we all have issues with authoritarian regimes, uh, but even in democracies uh, spanning the world, uh, the length and breadth of the world, there is a growing fascination for, you know, strongmen, leaders, uh, you know, who will, uh, you know, rule by the, you know, sort of the weight of their sword. Yeah. And, and that is something that, you know, voters don't seem to mind. And isn't that playing to China's strength? No, I would say, I would say it doesn't necessarily. There is a big difference between authoritarianism and, you know, what I call technocracy, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the fact that democratic societies want to see a leader who is, has a long-term vision, who's a modernizer, who may be tough, it doesn't mean that they want to sacrifice democracy, right? Those are two different things entirely. Yes, Asians have a deferential mindset. No, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying people will give up democracy. What I'm saying is the way people have frowned upon China for being an authoritarian regime for the last 30 years. I mean, people grew, who grew up in my generation, uh, they, don't look at, they look at it as a possibility and possibly uh, a necessary evil for growth to take place. And especially that is true in India, for sure. No, but to want a technocratic leader does not mean that you want to sacrifice democracy. To want to have certain Chinese characteristics of a strong and effective state is not to want to live under an all-powerful uh, authoritarian regime, because no Indian wants that. And it's extremely important for the brand of Asia to not be held synonymous with a country like China, given what China is doing. Let me just sum it up in one sentence. Mm -hmm. The more China acts like China, mm -hmm. the less anyone else on earth wants to be like China, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yep. And that's the way every Indian on, the, on Earth should feel, every Western citizen on Earth, and every African on Earth hmm. should be saying, the more I can see inside China and see the way they've handled this virus, the way they suppress their people, the way they use technology as a tool of oppression, the less I would ever want my country to be like that. And this is why you are having this backlash. And so my, you know, Samir's second point, which I think is the biggest question in the world today, is how can, become, how can Asia become more than just whatever China wants, is the central geopolitical question of the next 80 years is simply how do you ensure multipolarity across Eurasia and therefore if I can, the world? If I, can, if I can just jump in uh, to, in a sense, buttress what Parag is saying. I think the Chinese proposition to the world is quite clear and it is quite loud to those who study politics in sitting in India. What is the proposition? The proposition is that the world must be multipolar, aka I want to be part of the global management. The Americans have to make room for me. Second part of the proposition, China, Asia is unipolar. I will decide the future of Asia. The Chinese proposition is a unipolar Asia and a multipolar world, a G2 world and a U1 Asia. That is the Chinese proposition. Now, I think Asian century will become real mm. when an Asian union, which has China as a actor, is carved and put into place. Okay. And I think you will have to see a larger role for Russia. Americans be ready for that. You will have to see a big role for Japan. You will see the warring cousins, India and Pakistan in that uh, architecture. You will see the warring brother in Saudi Arabia and Iran in that architecture. You will see a group of eight or nine emerge if an Asian union has to be formed. A sensible Asian union that allows energy flows, that allows trade flows, that allows a degree of peace and stability, and that allows prosperity beyond the mainland. Mm. And, and prosperity that, that doesn't serve only the mainland. Okay. We've seen prosperity across, across Asia, but for the benefit of the mandarins in Beijing. I think it's time prosperity is decentralized and is available to the Central Asians, is available to the West Asians, is available to the South Asians. Okay, so I want to. Uh, we're running out of time. This 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 was fascinating, but I want to cut cut to the you know some of the operative parts of what I want to discuss. I think uh, what decides um, uh, the future uh, and what place uh, that India has in the future, uh, whether it is in Asia or in the global order, uh, will depend on you know what is the future looking like. What are the commodities that decide that are the most precious in the coming months, in the coming years? What are the businesses that are, uh, you know, uh, that are the most precious in the coming years? What are the technologies that are the most precious in the coming years? Can, uh, you know, both of you take turns. Let's start with Parag. Can you list out three things uh, that, uh, you know, that will be most important in the economies, uh, in the future economy, and uh, out of which uh, what India has and what it doesn't? Sure. Well, the most obvious one for now is health tech, right? Biotech and so forth. So this is an area where, unlike China, again, India has been, uh, in, in a way, in, involuntarily, but very positively thrust into the spotlight as one of the world's largest producers of generic medicines and a huge pharmaceutical research sector with a very transparent willingness to share, to sell, to ramp up production to the world and not to make preferences based on geopolitical relations. So this is the literal definition of a public goods provider acting in the global interest. And India, no one uh, asked India to do this. India did not uh, you know, ask it, it to be put in this role, but India is handling this very well. That's number one. The second is clean technology, right? Becoming more energy self-sufficient. We do not need to live in a world where oil and gas are put on huge tankers and shipped around the planet Earth at the cost of billions of dollars and endless greenhouse gas emissions. 
So India can do much more domestically as a clean tech leader, solar, wind, biomass, and so on and so forth. I would like to see India do more of this. India doing it for itself is a huge contribution towards global public goods as well. You want to clean up the global planet, uh, the global environment, India doing its part is a big contribution to that. And then digital technology. Right now, a lot of economists are looking at the unemployed labor force in the United States. Companies are saying, well, I'm not going to hire people to come back full time anymore. I'm going to hire remote workers. And I heard someone say just yesterday, well, then why hire Americans? You should just hire Indians, right? <laughs> if you want a good software programmer, a good computer scientist, a good data architect, a good cybersecurity expert, you don't need to hire someone at twice the cost who's living in California, hire an Indian. So, you know, India's uh, efforts, which could never be enough, right? Because we know that education is very uneven. We know that it's a pyramid, very unequal. Uh, so the more India can invest in education for all, technology education in particular, the more India obviously can be even more of a leader in global software exports and digital services than it has been. So how, what, what does that do to uh, Donald Trump's prospects in the uh, near future, in the, in the coming election? Uh, what, I, what I mean to ask is his narrative is completely different from what the future that we are projecting right now. Mm. And does that cut ice with American voters? Will it? And uh, if it doesn't, then what? Well, you know, that foreign policy is only an issue in U.S. elections and will be only now because of how the two candidates will try to outdo each other in bashing China and how tough they are on China and so on and so forth. It's not really a serious policy discussion. Immigration may also come up to some degree, and that does touch upon uh, India. But right now, you know, Trump is facing at this point, uh, from the Electoral College standpoint, a slightly uphill battle. But a lot could change, you know, and th these are not dynamics that we can control. And external forces are not going to shape the outcome at the end of the day. People are going to be voting based on what their pocketbook looks like uh, at that point in time. Um, and, you know, he's going to, you can tell with the way he's framing the, the vaccine issue. He's saying that we'll have the vaccine by January. And he's purposely choosing a date that is so close to after the election, saying that, you know, reelect me and I'll make sure that we remain on this uh, path, basically. But it's all politics. Let's not pretend that this, uh, you know, what I think of as a pristine, uh, you know, high level geopolitical conversation should not be muddied in the nonsense of uh, political rhetoric in the US right now. <laughs> so you're saying it won't have an impact? Uh, you know, our geopolitical conversation will not. Uh, obviously, again, China will, but talking about China in the context of how you use it rhetorically in an American election has very little to do with China's actual role in the world, which is what we are having a very good conversation. No, but 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 sort of you know trying to um, you know uh, cry wolf every time only you know sort of increases the credibility of the wolf more than the person crying. Well, it depends on if the person is legitimate or not. <laughs> I think that's the whole message of the parable, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> is yeah. not to cry wolf too much. Uh, you know, I, can I just jump in? I, yeah, I yeah, please. Want to the same question Shiram asked you, yeah. but before that, quickly on the Trump point. Yeah. I think let's be very clear that uh, you know no one is no serious person is going to be able to explain Trump to the world. He's <laughs> someone you can so let us not even get into that uh, you know business of trying to speak for him or speak about him or, you know, rationally explain his action. It's not possible. India has done well in the last four years to protect itself from the idiosyncrasy of the White House. I think we have come out la largely unscathed. We have been one of, we have not been one of Trump's victims. So uh, chances are 
that um, whoever comes to the White House is not going to be worse off than our last four years. We have done well. Let's put it this way. Now, on your more important point, I think India has three big projects to offer to the world, uh, and all of them have to do with building India itself. So, I don't think Indian global projects have any are different to what India needs to do for itself. If we do it for ourselves well, the world benefits, and that is the advantage of the next five years of the India story. The first, he spoke about health tech, but let me talk about the larger SDG agenda. If I have to. Uh, be able to find innovative solutions for 500 million Indian youth who have to study. If I have to find uh, health systems for over 100 million old folks and uh, many, many, many young uh, millions of young Indians, I will uh, be able to uh, create solutions that are easily uh, replicable in Africa, in other parts of Latin America and, and Asia. If I am able to find solutions for direct benefit transfer, then giving pay, universal, pay, you know the. the indian version of the universal basic income uh, you know social protection uh, using mobile phones and technologies um, giving a, a gig economy framework that works for bottom of the pyramid societies i will be discovering solutions for the world so india has to meet its development goals in 2030 it will become the world's first first 7 or 10 trillion dollar economy in the next 15 years that will be powered purely through development policies and it will be therefore the first development superpower of the world it is not going to be a military superpower it's not going to be a trade superpower it's going to be an sdg superpower as we get to that goal we will create development solutions that are uh, attractive to many others second we will be the first 5 trillion dollar economy the first 10 trillion dollar economy that will be carved and shaped and created in a carbon constrained world we will be the greenest greenest 5 and 10 trillion dollar economy ever we are already on the path to do that we have uh, per capita investments in solar energy two to three times more that more than the, those of the us very similar to eu much higher than china and japan so what i'm trying to say is india is already on way to becoming the first green 5 trillion dollar economy now this is a model that is easily uh, exportable to the world there are two benefits that come out of it number one we can sell india in the next 5 to 10 years as we need to stimulate our economy as we need huge amount of capital coming in from next year onwards to to restart our lives we can sell ourselves as the world's biggest green mitigation project invest in us and we will deliver the paris goals to you make sure that our revival is green by design make sure our auto sector is revived through evs make sure our buildings are green make sure when we redevelop our shanty towns into full cities it's sustainable invest in us to meet your paris goals and i'm not saying give us aid i'm not saying give us grant i'm saying create commercial instruments to invest in india's green story and that's the second deliverable and the final deliverable is technology i think there is china tech where uh, uh, they have weaponized uh, technology and you have us tech where they have capitalized technology i think india tech where you have public data sets available to much smaller businesses to uh, to to invest into and and benefit from i think india tech is likely to emerge post this crisis post this pandemic and you can see uh, the investments coming into one of india's platforms jio you can see lots of other partnerships emerging i think it large amounts of pools of money are going to start investing in indian platforms in the next 2 to 3 years and the india tech story is being born during this crisis i think that's the third offering to the world that you don't have to be either authoritarian tech or completely capitalist tech you can have a bit of socialist tech that india makes everything uh, at the end of the day call it by the way if i may if chinese tech is weaponized and american tech is corporatized india tech is humanized is humanized that's right so it's an sdg climate people friendly tech 
Of course, we had we have issues around privacy. I'm not saying that. Let's fight it out. Our courts allow that this, uh, debate to take place. Our regulators intervene. We have a most forward-looking net neutrality regime. We have a right to privacy, fundamental right. So I think we do it our way. We do it loudly. We do it grumbling, but we do it, and 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 we do it in an open and transparent manner. Our debates are there for the world to join into. So I think I think this is an interesting point uh, because uh, so what you're saying is. Uh, that if health tech uh, education and you know uh, in the india tech and you know the various sort of versions of the technology related uh, evolution and development that we are talking about and clean energy for example uh, for example something like a clean energy uh, takes away the competitive uh, edge that china has as a commodity supplier or a buyer uh, in in the world that that the power that it has wielded for two decades now at least parag mm. Well, China has already. There's one very important episode of China abusing its monopolistic uh, power, and that's rare earth minerals. The the reason that so many countries, especially Japan, began rapidly divesting out of China and pulling their supply chains out of China and diverting them towards Southeast Asia is precisely because China threatened to ban. The export of rare earth minerals. It's tried also to gang up on the copper,、uh, the copper cartel, right? So anytime China has power on either side of the equation, it's tried to abuse it, and that actually hastens the rest of the world's efforts to circumvent that Chinese dominance. And that's happening again today. I just want to say, you know, I think Samir's last points about India's role in the global future. Are an answer to the question that he raised at the beginning, which is how do we get beyond a China centricity? Here is India offering solutions and models and pathways for most of the world, because most of the world looks a lot more like India than it does like China. And I've spent a lot of time looking at the post-colonial world. As you guys know, the 150 countries of the world were born after 1945. None of them look like China. Almost all of them are like India. We are poor. We are fragmented. We are、uh, quasi-democratic, very devolved, dependent on public-private actors and charities to get things done.、Uh, you know, free and cacophonous places.、Uh, you know, parliamentary democracies. India is the role model for so many of us. I am going to counter that with one another、uh, often used phrase, which is familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> <laughs> But distance makes the an absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I think that, you know, the audience and the market for the Indian model stretches around the Indian Ocean and beyond.、Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, I, I even in Latin America and other places, you know, I'm actually seeing a lot more conversation about what's happening in India. How can one do Jugad? Every country has to do that because no country has the capital that China has. So I think that India can, in a, in a subtle way, in a humble way,、uh, simply. I,、uh, you know, I have, a, you know, Shriram. I just want to,、um, I, and this is something for all of us to think about. What worries me is that、um, we took such a bold and strategic, and I think for the first time, India made a geopolitical position well known to the world. Normally, it is one of either saying no or or or, or、uh, abstaining. But for the first time, it proactively decided it will oppose the Belt and Road Initiative. We were alone at the time that India was questioning the Chinese global ambitions. Uh, uh, you know, when everyone was paying a visit to the Emperor's Court,、uh, China was the odd,、uh, India was the only one standing out. India removed, refused to endorse the project, refused to participate in the project.、Uh, spoke about the lack of transparency, the opacity, the perverse debt practices. And、uh, uh, political expansionism embedded within that initiative, and we took a very bold initiative. 
Now what but we also me? but we also pulled out of RCEP maybe no, no. for the right reasons. Again, but, same uh, reason. I, RC, yeah. I, I, we don't. I, I, I don't believe we should be endorsing RCEP because we are then endorsing Chinese bad practices. With every other country, we have bilateral arrangements. And signing an RCEP is endorsing Beijing's practices. I think it's a great geopolitical decision. But okay. let me just end with one point. After refusing to be part of BRI, okay. after refusing to be part of RCEP because you fear Chinese. Malpractices and you want to oppose Chinese expansionist uh, economic policies. Why are you allowing China tech to infiltrate into your country so easily? Why is it that we have uh, embraced digital BRI while we have stood outside the main BRI? I think we need to rethink our digital policies or our political policies. There is something incongruent here. You can't reject BRI and then embrace uh, 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 China tech. I think. Uh, Countries around the world need to start seeing China as a whole for what it is. I think people are being opportunistic simply because they don't have alternatives, and that's my final point. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the world, India, the U.S., Japan, Australia, Korea, Indonesia, and others need to begin to realize that saying China is a problem is not good enough. A solution mm-hmm. has to be put on the table. Now, telling an African country that uh, infrastructure finance from China is a bad idea, you will. Be bankrupt in a few years is 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 nice and it sounds good at that time. But if you tell them here is an alternative line of funding that can build the same project, that can create the same power uh, plant, that can build a port for your country, is the right way to go about it. I think uh, all of us, the Chinese, have put money on the table. We have put books on the table. What the rest of the world has done is it has written about Chinese uh, malevolence, while the Chinese have put money on the table. I think it's time to stop putting books on the table and start putting bonds on the table. I think uh, the the Western bond markets, the Western funds, the Western investment needs to start uh, providing alternatives to folks who are mainly engaging with the Chinese because they have no alternative. So uh, you know, it is not just your uh, you know uh, the dictum that familiarity breeds. And I think now is a great time because the narrative uh, investors around the globe and this, there is a continuing hunt for yields. And in the post-corona world, I think a country like India definitely offers uh, that return. Uh, that most global investors want, and they don't get it in you know other Western democracies and other uh, big economies, including China. Uh, at this point, uh, the second question, I think we are nearly you know ending uh, near the end of this episode, but I want to touch upon one important aspect that we probably missed out, and both 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 of you spoke about it about creating an Asian Union, uh, mm. and, and 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 considering that these are the economies that are going to be the Uh, leading economies of the next five decades. Will this Asian Union? What will it look like? Will it be something that will be merged within the UN, and you know the actors will change, or will will these new multilateral organizations led by Asia be completely a separate unit set up in the next few years? So let me say on that, I, I don't think we'll ever actually have an Asian Union in the sense of what the European Union has. There cannot be a supranationalism amongst Asians given the incredible diversity. Uh, that exists, right? So, and the European circumstances are obviously quite unique, given again their 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 how compact the geography no, is. I, I am I am aware of this view from you, Parag, uh, but I will let you finish this thought because the audience may not be. Uh, but what I was trying to understand is, will we have a a new United Nations headquartered in Delhi or Beijing or Singapore? Well, just remember that because Asia is most of the world, there's no need to worry about what the United Nations does or does not do. For Asia to govern itself better is Asia's contribution to global governance. Let alone all of the benefits that Asia's growth and exports bring to the rest of the world. So we don't really need to care, quite frankly, about the United Nations per se right now. 
The question is, what does an Asian commonwealth of states look like? What does an Asian, um, you know, sort of organization uh, or institutions look like? And Samir was absolutely right at the beginning. He said, look, we do not have a sufficient number of robust Asian institutions, an Asian monetary fund, sufficient swap and credit lines between Asian central banks, uh, Asian trade agreements that actually have harmonized regulations rather than this patchwork where some of this Chinese malpractice, as he was rightly saying, and so forth. So a lot more can be done. And then, of course, infrastructure finance. You're left and, with either the Chinese... I want, I want to bring in the experience of the Asian infrastructure investment fund yeah. uh, and how it has been a big success uh, not just in Asia, uh, it has been a big money spinner for you know investors around the world. Look, the AIB is a very good example of one such entity. It will be a building block. It already is a building block of what an Asian order looks like uh, because it does disperse money broadly. India is the largest recipient of AIB loans. So you can, on the one hand, make a valid political statement in rejecting the BRI, but on the other hand, play ball with a very legitimate institution because it has a legitimate purpose, which is stimulating infrastructure. And, and it has an open governance architecture. And it, has, mm -hmm. and it has shaped itself and monitored itself on the ADB and the World Bank. And Absolutely. India is the second largest equity holder in that bank as well. So uh, uh, the point here is that uh, you should not be rejecting China. You have to work with China. The Asian, uh, let me use uh, Parag's book's title, let me plug for it. The future is Asian, but that Asian future will need a concert between certain important actors. And only then will the Asian be future, uh, will the future be Asian. Otherwise, it will be part Chinese, part Indian, part Russian, part Japanese. I think you're never going to have a European Union style political arrangement. You will have um, several Asian concerts happening at different places. You'll have the SEO, you'll have the ASEAN, you will have the, uh, the, the, the Gulf GCC, you will have the Indian Ocean Rim Association. You'll have multiple concerts taking place. And we need a coherence between these different concerts so that the larger Asian symphony is largely uh, something that we all can enjoy. Uh, it, it sounds a lot like uh, the global order right now sounds a lot like Indian politics, you know, uh, <laughs> crowded with regional parties uh, uh, without a national agenda. Uh, uh, <laughs> but having said that, uh, and I want to bring this I mean, in connection with the multilateral agencies that sort of are at the center of, you know, we've realized their importance in the coronavirus world. Uh, but I know, Samir, uh, you are a very harsh critic of the World Health Organization and the way it no, has I'm not a critic of the World Health Organization. It's good I'm using your platform to clarify. I think mm. Dr. Tedros was terrible. I think he mm. failed in leadership. I think the World Health Organization is an absolutely important institution. I think mm. its, its management uh, was politically subservient and that is different. Uh, okay. Bad management doesn't mean bad institution. I think WHO needs to be radically reformed, revived uh, and no and made to serve uh, global communities, not serve the interest yeah. of one actor. My problem with the WHO was that it was captured right. by, uh, by China to serve its uh, uh. propaganda needs. No, but I, what I'm trying to allude to is the temptation uh, for a multilateral organization so far under the, uh, you know, uh, the shadow of US uh, to so easily be swayed in favor of China. And why that can't happen in other multilateral organizations? Do you no, it will happen in all that? multilateral institutions. Every political leadership in a multinational institution will be swayed by some political power because mm -hmm. the leadership is dependent on being re-elected on that political power. Now, I think Shashi Thirur gave Is that power China? Is that power China? It doesn't matter. I, I, I don't think this is an anti-China uh, position that I have taken. 
I have okay. taken a position that WHO has to serve the global community, not Chinese interests. Now it doesn't matter now if WHO was serving American interests and creating conspiracy theories around the origin of the virus, then I think WHO would be equally perverse in its discharge of duties. Now, so I am not having to choose between two uh, uh, perverse actors. Mm. I think WHO has to be an international organization. I think Shashi Tharoor gave a good idea that day that if you limit the term of the, uh, of the head of the organization to one term, make it six years, they have, once they come into the office, they have no need to serve anyone. I think it's term limits uh, that that should be universal across all multilateral bodies. All multilateral much easier to implement, quite frankly, in international organizations than in in our own national politics. Yeah, I think term limits is a great idea. Once the person knows that he doesn't have to serve anyone to be reelected, he can serve the institution and the people he's meant to serve. WHO did bad because they were serving the wrong um, set of folks, not the global community that they are, uh, you know, responsible for. And I also want to make a closing comment uh, just to sort of uh, clear the air on uh, one of the conspiracy theories, like you said, you alluded to. I think the Twitter is still full of those, uh, you know, people sharing that kind of misinformation that how coronavirus, the COVID-19 is a bio war started by China. I think both of you gentlemen disagree with it. And do you want to say one line each on why is it impossible for something like that to happen, at least in 2020? <laughs> no, I see again. My, my debunking conspiracy theories is not a scientific assertion that I know what happened. Ah, I that's think, okay. I, I think we must, we must be very careful. I'll tell you. You are asking, a, me, to, are asking what, me to... We uh, had a political to, scientist on our panel. It did not happen. I, what I have said is that the conspiracy theories need to be debunked. We don't yeah. know. I think the European Union position, the Australian position and some other countries that are seeking a transparent uh, investigation into how... Uh, the interspecies jump to place is a valid demand. All of us must demand that of the WHO and of the Chinese that a, that a scientific inquiry, once the, the, the peak infections have been managed, must take place. We must be prepared for the future. I think um, some of uh, the scientific evidence points to the wet markets. Then we must respond to the wet market uh, malpractice, if, it, if I could call it that. Uh, and if it was... Um, uh, human experimentation that must to be stopped. But to call it bio war or bio weapon, and uh, I think that is probably uh, something which is frivolous and facetious. Absolutely, Parag couldn't agree more. Okay, <laughs> because one of the so we had a, dip, a British diplomat who had served in many countries for many decades, uh, and is now as a political scientist in his own right. Uh, and he said that I have served in so many countries, and I don't think any bureaucrat has the competence to execute something like this without being caught uh, for so long. Yeah, the lockdown, they can't execute our lockdown and the, <laughs> and the opening up without 25 clarificatory notes. Anyways, and now, you know, imagining the same set of people to create this highly uh, conspiracy, you know, anyways, so that's a different debate. I'm sure you will have it again with some other panelists. Uh, I think though, to, to bring oh, it to our central subject, you know, we should not we have rose-tinted glasses and expect transparency from China. So since we are not going to have transparency from China, it really does reinforce the central message that we have to be uh, on guard, in a way, uh, against uh, abuse of Chinese power and authority, whether it is geopolitical, whether it is economic, or whether it is diplomatic. And, and let me conclude by just adding to that. I think Chinese models operate in the night. They need darkness to thrive. If you want an Asian century of light, we need a different political arrangement for Asia. 
that's a fantastic closing line for a very riveting discussion that we've had i still have at least five more questions for each one of them both parag and samir uh, but that's all the time we have in our special broadcast today uh, but i want to summarize this entire conversation uh, for our viewers um, i think the essential message that is coming from both parag and samir who has slightly different takes on what the future of asia is going to be uh, but they, what they agree upon is this china is powerful it is likely to be more powerful but it shouldn't be and that will happen only if countries that are similar in nature that people where people believe in democracies uh, like india singapore you know australia and other asian uh, countries in the asian region who believe that the future has to be more humane and led by technology which is not driven by corporate interests or the interest of the government uh, you know people who believe in surveillance people who believe in keeping people under check the technology of the future should be different from these two one is the american style one is the chinese style and we should develop a more humane development of technology in the years to come and that is where india can find its place in the world and that is i think a, a, a sort of a short summary of what uh, we discussed here and for that to happen india needs the support and uh, and it need should offer its support also to other similar nations who believe in democracies and this is i think a strong message for people who do not understand or not interested in geopolitics for every one of those people who are sitting in their drawing rooms and saying you know what we should totally work like china our government should be like china that's when we will grow that's when we will be rich you don't really know what you're wishing for and if it comes true it could be a lot more dangerous than you can imagine so before forming opinions before look uh, uh, you know forwarding those conspiracy theories on your whatsapp uh, before putting out uh, you know very loose um, you know uninformed messages on tiktok please make sure that you have enough information because like i said just now what you wish for could be very dangerous thank you so much parag and sami for your time thank you and uh, we hope to get you back again on business insider for more conversations because the uh, post coronavirus world is just as uncertain as it was a few weeks ago and i think uh, a lot more minds need to come together a lot of a lot more knowledge needs to come together to build a better world for ourselves thank you so much great with that this is shri ram ayer signing off